Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our awesome past shows by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. And as we're nearing the end of the year, we now have a really nice library of content to check out from 2020. So please go and listen to any past episodes that you missed. And as always, I would love to hear from you. My email is hope at upc-online.org. Today on the podcast, we have an interview with Serena Farb, who was actually born vegan. I'm meeting young people now that were born and raised vegan or went vegan in their very early years, and they're now adults, so it makes me feel kind of old. But besides that, it's really awesome. I mean, not only did these kids get the benefit of a really healthy start on life, they were taught compassion in a deep and fundamental way at a very early age. And also, we get to see that vegan kids grow into fully formed, full-size, healthy vegan adults, so it's perfectly safe. So we had a great discussion about her growing up vegan. So we'll get to that interview with Serena in just a few minutes. But first, because the holidays are coming up, and if you have the means and will be buying gifts, I'd like to encourage you to please support vegan businesses. And we have a lot of options for vegan businesses online, and you can order and have your gifts shipped completely socially distanced. So it's great for this year. And we're actually going to be featuring one of these businesses on the podcast today. This is a really fun new online shop called Vegan Dreams Gifts. And I was able to have a brief chat with the creator of Vegan Dreams Gifts, Jacinda Virgin. Jacinda, welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast. Hi, thank you. Nice to take time and chat today. Yeah, absolutely. So glad that you could. And I want you to tell us about your new business, Vegan Dreams Gifts. I've been to the site and it's just really fun. There's a lot of adorable and fun and delicious looking stuff. So please tell us all about it. Yes. Yeah, so it's a cruelty-free gift shop. I'm catering more towards uh, themed gift sets. Uh, you can get boxes, bags, or you can add a bag to a box and customize your boxes more with smaller things that we have to add in the store as well. So the themes are different things you can think of that you might want your gift set to be like. So I have a yum box that's my bestseller and that has lots of cool vegan snacks and things to try, like maybe some oldie but goodie stuff, but then also new items that you might not have ever tried before. And then I also have like a birthday set. I have gluten-free, soy-free, since that's part of my diet, I like to cater to helping people find cool new items out there like that. And then also fun things for just random occasions you want to cheer up somebody's day, like a pick-me-up or a brighten-your-day bag. My newest sets are the coffee lovers, tea lovers, and hot chocolate lovers. They were really fun to work on, and I, I really like finding cool random mugs. Uh, lots of animal things in, in my shop, because if you're vegan, I, I figure you love animals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and I, I, I'm so excited for the hot chocolate lovers selection, because I have actually now been to two stores in here in Sacramento looking for vegan hot chocolate, and I can't find it. Wow. So it's not an easy thing to find. So you've got some really unique things that are uh, difficult to find for vegans that are delicious and fun. So it's really exciting. Yes. Yeah. So, so Jacinda, what made you want to start this business? How did that all come together? I had a lot of extra time during the COVID time and I just really wanted to channel something kind of like activism, but also something that was fun to me. So I could just feel like I'm making a difference. And I 
kept thinking about this for a while and I come from a graphic design background but also have marketing experience and having worked at a vegan company I learned a lot of skills with e-commerce and things like that so I knew what I needed to do to make this happen so what are your plans for the future with it my next things that I'm going to be launching uh, that hopefully will be up soon because all our cooler holidays are, I mean, the cooler times are on us. In California, it doesn't really get too cold, but I think of <laughs> winter for everybody else. Yes. <laughs> um, we still like those warm drinks anyway, but um, <laughs> I'm going to have mugs where people can pick a mug and then they choose like what set they want to go with it. Mm. And I'm also going to have the choice of chai, matcha, or even turmeric latte. It's like a little set. So that's one thing. And then I also have a Go Vegan starter box that I'm hoping to launch for Veganuary. And I haven't seen anybody do this yet. There's lots of lists online of what you need for your pantry, let's say, to go vegan. And, you know, it'll have nooch, uh, some B12 vitamins, and maybe some black salt and liquid smoke and a, a, a vegan egg, things like that. The basic necessities you need to start veganizing things. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so, and then I'm also going to be trying to include some recipe booklets that I'm going to get from some of the nonprofits and also uh, coupons from companies. Nice. That's a great yeah. idea. So Jacinda, how can we find Vegan Dreams Gifts online? VeganDreamsGifts.com is my website and I also am on Facebook and Instagram and my shop is through Etsy and they're all easy to find with Vegan Dreams Gifts. All right. Wonderful. And I will definitely put that information in the show notes so everybody can link easily there. And I hope that everyone goes and checks it out and perhaps gets a gift bag for someone special, including themselves. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's always good to treat yourself. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on, Jacinda, and have a wonderful holiday. Yes, you too. Thank you. So I want to introduce our guest for today's podcast. Today we have Serena Farb. She is a Midwest-based scientist, educator, and activist with a passion for making the world a better place. She is the co-founder of the Climate Diet Solution and co-host of the 2020 Climate Diet Summit. She was born and raised vegan in Kansas, and Serena has a lifetime of experience speaking and advocating for veganism, climate justice, sustainable plant-based living. She also currently serves on the Plant-Based Network Advisory Committee and writes and creates educational content on her website and her YouTube channel, Born Vegan. And we are so happy to have her. Hello, Serena. Hi. Thank you so much for having me, Hope. Of course. Thanks for joining us. So, okay. I am, I, it's so amazing to me that you were lucky enough to be born and raised vegan. It's just really awesome. And I'm going to try not to feel old that there are now adults who were raised vegan. Really cool. So what was it like growing up vegan? How did you feel about it growing up? When did you first discuss veganism with your parents. What was it like? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's honestly the one of the biggest blessings in my life. And I am so grateful that my parents made that decision for me when I was really little. And, you know, of course it had its ups and its downs as being different in a, a world that's, you know, doing something very different than I and my family were. But I don't really remember the first time I actually, you know, talked about or realized I was different because it was part of our daily conversation from day one. Yeah. It was something that we were just, you know, from the minute I can remember even talking, I knew that we didn't eat animals. And of course, my parents talked about it with me in very child terms, like, you know, we don't eat animals 
animals because we love them. We don't want to hurt them. Just very simple things that a small child can understand. Hmm. And, and so I, we were always talking about that when we would eat the, the only, you know, vegan meats around at the time, like a vegan hot dog or something, which were very different than many of the ones on the market today. <laughs> um, and uh, my parents would be clear to specify, you know, that's a vegan hot dog. Why don't we eat real hot dogs? Oh, because real hot dogs are made out of animals. These are made out of plants. So I knew, you know, in school and when I was around peers, that what we were eating and doing was different. And I, I was sort of always aware of that from when I was really little. Hmm. But did you at some point realize, make the realization that other people ate animals? And, and what was that like? I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, because when I was growing up, I loved animals and I had mm-hmm. pictures of animals on my walls. And that's why I made the connection at a very young age at 16 to stop right. eating them. So I can't really imagine like the other way around. It's kind of like, like learning that the animals that you love and that your parents have taught you to love as a child, suddenly you realize that other people are killing and eating them. <laughs> Right. And and that was honestly one of the hardest parts about growing up vegan. It mm. was that I always cared deeply about animals and it made so much sense to me that if we love animals, you know, we don't eat them. And, you know, even though we talked about it from when I was really little, I don't think I, you know, fully appreciated like what that really meant that other people were eating animals until I was a little bit older. But I remember being around six or seven. Um, this was when I was, you know, doing competitive gymnastics. And so I was around a team of other, you know, peers my age who were definitely not vegan. And I had kind of started to take on veganism for myself and, and felt like it was my choice at that point. And I can remember we would get goodie bags that had, you know, non-vegan candy or things in them. And I knew what gelatin was at that point. And I can remember looking at another, you know, girl who pulled a piece of candy out and saying, that has gelatin in it. You know, and, and she may have asked, why don't you eat this? I don't remember the specifics, mm. but I, I remember, you know, in detail describing what gelatin is and, and how it's made <laughs> to this other like seven-year-old girl oh. and her looking at me and going, whatever, it tastes good. And then popping the candy in her mouth. And I remember just like standing there going, seriously? Like, mm. that, what, what, like that, that doesn't bother you at all? Like that's not gross. That's not weird. And it was just very hard for me to wrap my head around how other people couldn't see what I saw. Mm. I'll bet because you were living it from the beginning. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. 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 And it just, I mean, it just went on, you know, then when I was, I remember being in sixth grade and that's when I sort of really was becoming an activist too. And I was going to this school where I brought my own lunch and some other kids did as well. Some of them ate the school lunch. And I would bring like the, these, even if you like meat flyers and like why vegan flyers to school. Hmm. And, and I don't necessarily recommend these tactics if anyone is trying to do activism today, but I would open up the flyer that had graphic images of like, you know, a pig being slaughtered to the person in front of me that was, you know, eating a hot dog or something. Oh. And, and like, while they were eating that, you know, oh. piece of meat, I was opening up this graphic flyer in their face because I just, I really believed that other people must not have no, like, and that was kind of the way I rationalized <laughs> yep, it. It was right. like, you must not know if right. you're doing this. And so once you know, once I share this information with you, obviously you'll agree with me and stop. Right, right. Most people go through that, you know, when they make their decision at 20 or 30 or 40, mm-hmm. and you were doing this in elementary school. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Oh man. Yeah. There's, there's that, that moment of realization when you think about your friends and family and you're like, well, with you, it wasn't your family, but your friends, right? if they just knew, they must not know. They mm-hmm. must not realize this is an animal and they suffered. If everybody just knew, they'd all go vegan. And there's this kind of heartbreaking reality that uh, a lot of people just will not change or care. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but we're, but, but that is changing because of people like you and me and your mom and dad. 
So did you ever think about eating animals or animal products though? I mean, or were you just vegan all the way through or did you ever question it? I mean, we all go through that rebellious teenage period, you know, Mm -hmm. did you ever rebel against your parents and veganism? Yeah. I mean, that's actually a really common question I get. People always want to know if I've ever, you know, wanted to try meat or felt like I missed out or something. And it's a complex answer. So first of all, when I was about seven years old, my parents gave me my own food choices. And what I mean by that is, as most parents do with most children when they're really little, they're choosing what they eat, what they go to you know, school with, what's their lunch, what they can eat when they're out. My, my parents were making those decisions for me. So it, it, didn't, you know, it didn't seem really abnormal at that point. It was just our family eats different you know, it would be like some of, and I have cousins that are, you know, Orthodox Jews and keep kosher. And that's just what those children and those families did. And so I think it was similar to that when I was really little. But as I was getting older, my parents decided that when I was out with friends or at a birthday party or, you know, somebody at school offered me food, they didn't want it to be this like, you can't eat that. We're still keeping you from doing that. And they couldn't, you know, obviously there's a point at which kids are in the world enough that parents really can't control what they are eating or doing or sharing with friends. And so my parents didn't want to be in that position. And so they said, you know, let's give you your own food choices. Now, to be clear, this was not phrased as, you can choose whether you want to stay vegan or not. It was never framed like that. It was more like, up until this point, we've decided what you eat and what you can eat when you're out. And it went beyond veganism. Like, you know, I didn't get to have two pieces of cake when I'm out somewhere sometimes. Like, they were trying to keep me healthy, too, and limit my sugar intake as a very small child. So when they said you can have your own food choices, it was like, about me choosing what I put in my body, not about veganism and me like choosing not to be vegan. So, and to get my own food choices, I also had to be educated. So I had this stack of note cards that had every food item, thing I might see on a label, you know, obscure ingredients uh, like lanolin or whey protein or casein, these things that you might find on labels that we didn't eat. So I had to be able to read them, explain what they were, how they were made, why we didn't eat them. And then once I knew all of these things, then my parents were like, well, now this, you know, all this information. So it's up to you whether you eat these things or not. And Um, and how old were you at this time? At this point? I was seven at that point. So I had just learned to read and that was what held it back. You know, it was like once, once you can read fully so that you can read labels and make informed decisions, that's when we think you're mature enough to do this. Mm. So, you know, once I was educated and knew all this, the only thing that really changed for me was I felt in control of what I was doing and no longer like my parents were making this decision for me. So I didn't, you know, immediately go, oh, I'm going to go out and eat meat now because obviously I had just learned all of these things, read all these labels, knew why we we didn't eat these things. And at seven, that's, you know, kind of the pre-rebellion age too. So I didn't really have any interest or feel compelled to go against my parents. So I still stayed vegan, did nothing really changed except Basically, when when kids would ask me, why can't you eat that? I would say, oh, I can. I choose not to. Mm, Yeah. Uh, It really empowered me to feel like I was in control of being vegan. And I was at a young enough age where I wasn't really rebelling. So that was kind of the first time where I thought about it. But I didn't really think about it because you're seven years old and you're still, you know, especially reading all of that information I just learned. I had no intention of doing anything different. But then I would say the only other time that I have, you know, really questioned it was when I got to college. And I didn't really question being vegan as being vegan. But of course, I'm at, you know, uh, a liberal arts college. I have friends that are philosophy majors and people that are into, you know, regenerative agriculture and small backyard family farming. And they're talking to me about why they do the things they do. So I'm really out on my own. I'm really hearing all of these different things and ending up in intellectual discussions and, and sometimes arguments with people that really did make me question things. 
because I am a critical thinker and I don't want to just be doing what I'm doing just because it's what my parents or family did. I really want to be sure that it's right. Of course, I thought very deeply about it, but I can't say I ever came close to actually questioning veganism or wanting to try animal products. It just further deepened my conviction, having to debate and discuss my values with other people. I did more research. I looked into things for myself. I went deeper than I ever had before and came out stronger in my convictions about not harming animals. So can you talk a little about what it's like living in the Midwest farm country? You're in Kansas. So Mm -hmm. what are people's attitudes about animals and veganism in Kansas? I mean, my family's from the South. They're from (laughs) Kentucky and Tennessee. So I get it. I go, well, I got out as soon as I could. I came to the bubble of California once uh-huh. I became an adult. So, but I know what it's like to visit. But what has it been like for you to live there? Yeah. So, when I was really little, we did manage to find a few other friends and families that were vegetarian or vegan supportive. And, you know, we ha- we actually did even here in Kansas have small play groups where most of the food and things we were doing was vegan. But as I've gotten older and as I've traveled more and been other places, I've really seen the difference between being in the Midwest and other places. But in particular, I've actually really noticed how this impacts things I do today. In the last five years or so, especially with the rise of so-called, you know, happy meat or humane farming. That is huge here in the Midwest and in Kansas. Even though the, the city I'm living in right now is, you know, a pretty progressive place and had like a vegetarian co-op many years back, that co-op has since become no longer vegetarian, even though it was founded that way, and is now very into local meat products. And it's I've had some fascinating discussions with people, but I see farming all around me. I know so many people, both in college, because I went to school in the Midwest, and where I live. Most people are going to have family members or friends or know someone that are involved in farming. There isn't that much distance between the way I think, you know, living in some place like New York City or San Francisco, where there's lots of people that probably don't know anyone actually involved in in uh, any sort of animal farming. You know, increasingly in Kansas, there's been a big push for the so-called humane, free-range, small family farming, even within the city limits. And a couple years ago, the city actually that I'm in now passed an ordinance basically allowing the slaughter of chickens in people's backyards. And just to give you an example of sort of the attitudes that I've run into, I went to one of the city commission meetings with this, with my family and some other people, and we were kind of protesting it. And we ended up in this conversation with some of the audience members and commissioners where I basically asked, is there a humane way to kill an animal that wants to live? And this person in the audience who I believe was a uh, someone who was raising and killing chickens looked at me and said, yes, absolutely, gassing them. Mm. And I, I just looked at her and I was like, how would you feel if someone gassed you against your will? And she goes, oh, I think about, all, I think about that all the time. Like, I'd be fine with euthanasia. And I I was just like, I didn't even respond any further because I think her comment stood out enough to like everyone else listening (laughs) that it was just like, well, are the rest of you okay with that? Like, are you so set on being logically consistent in your arguments that you're going to say you're okay with like someone else killing you? Mm. Yeah. And just to clarify, gassing is a, a horrible, horrible way to die. I mean, you're basically choking to death. It can take, you know, agonizing minutes. It's it's a horrible, horrible way to die. And it's just so amazing that someone would think that that is a humane way <laughs> to kill uh, someone. Always, it's so interesting to me when people will say, Oh, yeah. Well, I'd be fine with someone killing me in that way. Mm -hmm. Well, when? Right now? (laughs) 
tomorrow? No. Against your will? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You want to live your full life? Well, so does a chicken. Mm -hmm. You know, that's so frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's Kansas. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Well, it's interesting that you say that the humane what I call the humane hoax, mm-hmm. those, all those labels, the cage free and free range and all those things that we see uh, now where, you know, the industry is trying to appease people and make them feel that everything is okay on the farm. So it's interesting to me that that is really popular there. I thought mm-hmm. that really that was only going on, you know, I mean, I knew it was everywhere, of mm-hmm. course. But I thought that it was really most popular in more liberal places, you know, like Northern California mm-hmm. and the East Coast. It really is interesting to me that that's so big there. In a way, it's a good sign because it means that the message that we've been trying, that vegans have been trying to project for years, for decades, is mm-hmm. getting to farm country as well, that mm-hmm. the animals are not being treated well. Things are terrible and, and torturous on the farm. So the industry is responding with these labels. So that's, I mean, it's, it's kind of a good sign, but at the same time, it's worrisome because we do need to address it. We need to shift our rhetoric away from the term factory farming and big industrial farming because everybody agrees Mm -hmm. that's bad. Everybody's on board with that. We've got to shift to talking about this small scale, humane family farming because it's just as bad. So I know that your mom, Joanne, is an animal rights activist, and we've, we've had her speak at our UPC's Conscious Eating Conference. So were you aware that your mom was an activist? And how young were you? When did you get into animal activism? Was it because of your mom? Yeah. So, I mean, for sure, like my mom has been a huge inspiration and and person in my life. You know, I was probably under a year old when she was hosting vegan barbecues in Kansas City with 300 people attending and handing out literature. Those were back in the days when she actually like got interviewed on TV and stuff. People Mm. weren't like actually scared to bring vegans on. It wasn't a threat. It was just like, oh, this strange person who's vegan and raising her kids vegan. (laughs) Um, So it's been there as long as veganism has. And even beyond that, like the reason my mom wanted to raise us vegan and probably sort of the fundamental values underlying everything my family's done, she wanted to raise children who wouldn't look away when they saw an injustice and would speak out and, and help push society to a better place. Mm-hmm. So even more fundamental than veganism, those were sort of the values I was raised with. I think as I I feel like I really became an activist when I got my own food choices and it became like my decision. And then I had just learned and read all these different labels and information. And that's when I really started sharing it with other people. But my family was also taking me to vegan conferences, taking me to animal rights events. I think I went to a circus protest when I was like 10 years old. And that was, I'd known about other people going and we had purposely not gone because it was in kind of a rougher area of the city and people cussed back at the activists. And so my parents had kind of not wanted to take me into that for a while. So I remember it was like a big deal and another kind of rite of passage. I'm going to my first circus protest. (laughs) And I was very excited to do that. So yeah, I uh, definitely was my mom, but I feel like it was really just this underlying ideology that's driven everything in our family of when you see an injustice, it's our duty to speak out and try and change it. So tell us about your background in science. You have a degree in biochemistry, I believe, and have done some research in molecular biology, and you've taught high school chemistry and environmental science. How has that supported and connected with your animal activism? Yeah, so I love science. I love the scientific method. Fundamentally, because it is about critical thinking and asking the difficult questions and recognizing that, you know, the establishment sometimes gets things wrong and questioning things, pushing things, researching things helps us come closer to the truth and, and help society adapt 
and become you know more progressive. That said, science is just a method. And if you don't apply an ethical framework to it as well or other outside values, it's not inherently ethical or just good or going to make society a more just place. But it's a great tool. And I, you know, saw this when I was really little and my parents were talking about the science behind cardiovascular disease and how that related to a vegan or at least a whole foods plant-based diet. And I knew that my grandfather actually had basically reversed his angina and gotten off drugs and avoided heart surgery by changing his diet. So I kind of had that background and my mom was also in science and I started doing science fairs when I was really little and I loved the research aspect. I loved, you know, exploring things, learning, asking questions, digging deeper, collecting data. I actually used to think that I was going to do something more directly in the sciences. Obviously, I got my degree in it, but my my real passion is for education. And so that's kind of why I went more that route and ended up teaching science. But it really intersects for veganism with me because one of the things I also feel like I most got out of being raised vegan was the ability to think critically. It was the ability to recognize that I was doing something different in a world, so very different than everyone around me. And I knew the facts and the reasoning why. I knew that the USDA dietary guidelines promoting dairy were not scientifically based and were wrong and driven by industry bias and lobbying. And so being able to see and know that from such an early age and sort of go against the tide and do something so different than everyone around me has helped me to look at any other issue in my life, social justice, science, whatever, and really ask, is this evidence-based? Is this really what makes sense? Is there bias? Is there a similar situation to what I know happens with the dairy industry and the lobbying they do to influence guidelines? That's sort of where they intersect for me, is the, the critical thinking I learned from veganism is really what science and evidence-based practices are all about. Wow. Well, that's, it's so important right now. I can't believe how the public has rejected science to some degree, this hopefully small segment of the population, but vocal segment of social media. And it's so scary, honestly, because we need science to be objective. We need science to tell us what directions to go, especially with things like a pandemic or like, you know, global warming. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just to throw my two cents in, part of what I, I see the problem as is that so much of science has become corporate biased science, whether we're talking about things like organic and, and genetically modified agricultural products or nutrition and the nutrition guidelines, um, you know, all of these different things. So much of what is getting to people is not the real science. And it becomes very difficult for a lot of people to filter through that. And so then you see lots of appeals to authority that often sometimes are correct, sometimes are not. And so that's why I feel really strongly about equipping everyone with the ability to do their research and un and understand these things. And And, you know, at the high school level, it's obviously a little bit difficult when I'm, and I did try to teach my students to read peer-reviewed published scientific literature. I think some of that went over their head. I hope they get more of that later on. But yeah, I think, I think it's become very, very confusing and complex and very politicized. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I think that there's a distrust in a way because of media and things like that, where there'll be just one study that comes out and it suddenly gets a ton of media attention and things will go back and forth. Oh, eggs are good for you. Eggs are bad for you. Eggs are good for you mm -hmm. again. You know? Yeah, absolutely. People don't understand that you have to back up. You have to look at the meta analysis. You have to look at decades of studies and come to a, a conclusion based on not just one 
study and you also have to look at who backed that study. I mean, there's a lot to it. And, and absolutely. Yeah. And study design, like that's one of the big things. It's like you can design a study to get the results you want. And that's why bias and who's funding it really matters. Like I, you know, did this experience, sort of example with my students where I would say, what do you think about smoking? And they're all like, oh, it's bad for you. Yeah. And I said, do you think there's any benefits to it? What if, what if I told you there was a study uh, that showed smoking was good for weight loss? Would that be an inaccurate study? And they're like, huh, you know, and I'm like, but it didn't measure cancer risk, right? So both the study showing that smoking increases your cancer risk and the study showing that it's good for weight loss could both be accurate at the same time. But if you just look at weight loss and never measured or looked for a cancer risk, you would never find it. And you could walk away thinking smoking is good for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's why we have to be critical thinkers and learn mm -hmm. how to really analyze science. Absolutely. So it's similar to these studies that we see about meat, where you know, oh, there's a high iron content in meat. So meat's good for anemia, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, so people can just focus in on that. Researchers can just focus in on that. And then the media picks up on it. But the bigger picture of, wow, it, there's no fiber, there's no phytochemicals, there's no antioxidants. Yep. It's, you know, it causes cancer, it causes heart disease. All of that gets kind of brushed under the rug with this one mm -hmm. study around iron. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Cholesterol, I mean, is a great example of this too. There have been studies, you know, designed where they already show, you know, you're already starting with such a high level of cholesterol that additional cholesterol is like spilling over the edge of a full cup. So they're like, oh, it doesn't raise your, you know, eating more cholesterol or eating more eggs doesn't raise your cholesterol. And it's like, well, you designed it starting with such a high level to begin with that it doesn't pick up those differences. Mm. So it's, it's, you know, there's so much that is beyond just like a study says X or a study says Y. It's, and that's why bias and funding and who's driving it matter so much because it's, it's all about the, the study design. Yeah, absolutely. So who do you think is a good uh, doctor, researcher, nutritionist to look to? I love uh, Dr. Greger, Dr. Michael Greger, and his nutritionfacts.org. I think he's mm -hmm. awesome and does incredible research. Who, who do you like? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't agree with any one person, 100%, mm. um, or, you know, any uh, I, I don't think there's any one person that we are in agreement or that I like their perspective on everything, but I do like a lot of uh, Dr. Greger's videos, nutrition facts for sure. Um, I love his video all about eggs, especially, and the USDA guidelines for not being able to call them healthy or safe, which people mm. don't realize. Mm, um, wow. That's Everybody should check that video out. If Yeah, totally love that. I have always really respected the work of uh, T. Colin Campbell yes. and, and uh, the, the China study, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn as well, Dr. Milton Mills, and, and he's talked a lot about racial bias and the federal nutrition guidelines and is kind of merging several different issues there, which I think is, uh, is wonderful. Dr. Brooke Goldner talking about autoimmune diseases. She's been doing some amazing work. I mean, there's just, there's so many. <laughs> it's hard for me to come up with names off the top of my head. So Serena, what do you personally find most effective in your activism and changing people's attitudes towards animals? So for me personally, I like talking to people, either, you know, a group of people, but especially one-on-one. -on -one. And I want to be clear that I don't think there is any one perfect or right way to do activism. I think it depends on the individual, what resources you have, what your skills are. But for me, I really like talking to people one-on-one -on -one and using a sort of Socratic method, questioning, and, and really getting to the root of why do they do what they do? Why do they hold the values they have? Because what I want to show them is that I actually believe they already agree with veganism. I, I believe that most people that I talk to, a lot of them at least, already think it's wrong to hurt animals unnecessarily. Yeah. 
and they just don't see how they're actually doing that. And so really questioning them, getting to the root of either helping them see that they're just eating animal products because they taste good or are convenient and that's not in alignment with their values, or if they really don't agree with that, asking why. Like, what is it about non-human animals that makes it okay to kill them, but, you know, obviously we agree it's not okay to kill humans. So, like, what is that trait or that difference? And most people get stumped and can't come up with a, a consistent justification that when applied to humans, be consistent. So I, I personally think that changing people's attitudes about animals is what is most effective for me, and it's most in alignment with the world I really want to see, because there's, there's some research that suggests that for social change to take place, you don't actually need, you know, 80% or a majority of the population to agree, that really you need, you know, between like 15 to 20%, and there's different estimates, and it's still a growing field of research, but, it, but the, if you have, you know, 15% of the population that really strongly holds a belief that it's wrong to kill animals, that that theoretically could be enough to create this ripple effect and totally transform society and our values and how we operate, and then everyone else would follow. So I really focus on changing individuals' perceptions about animals and helping them become and, and live vegan in the hope that even if I'm only talking to a small number of people on a regular basis, that we don't need the whole world to do this. We just need a small number of people to really strongly hold these values and express them. And that that could very radically change things. That's right. We just need a critical mass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I remind people that when they lament, you know, that, oh, their family, you know, is not listening to them and not going vegan or good friends or whatever. It's like, no, we don't need them. We don't need people that are not going to change right now expand and find those people that are interested and do want to mm -hmm. hear and are looking for the information. We need those people. So Serena, tell me about your Born Vegan project. I know you have a, a YouTube page and I believe you are interviewing others that were born and raised vegan. Is that correct? Tell me about the Born Vegan project. Yeah, so mainly it's just sort of my project about my experience growing up vegan, and I really started it because I got questions all the time about, you know, isn't it brainwashing, or you must be so deprived or deficient, or, you know, all of these things that I've heard growing up, and I really wanted to speak out against that because while I know today many other people that are raising their children vegan not many of them, I don't know as many, I do know a few, but I don't know as many that are vegans who have made it to adulthood and are still passionate about this and, and speaking up about it. And so I really felt like there was this need to dispel a lot of the myths I was hearing by sharing my personal experience. So I do a combination on my YouTube channel of just general vegan information for people mixed in with, you know, stories about how I got my own food choices, why it's not brainwashing to raise your children vegan, you know, what the nutrition science really says about, you know, what children need to be eating and if a vegan diet is safe or healthy. And, and then my personal experience, you know, with things like how did I deal with birthday parties? How did I deal with talking to peers about veganism? Was I able to do competitive gymnastics? Have I been harmed by being raised vegan? So it's really all of that. And, and I do occasionally interview and bring on other lifelong vegans, but that's not primarily what I'm doing with it at mm -hmm. this point. Now, that's wonderful. Uh, I think that it's so important, especially for people that are thinking about having children or, you know, have children they want to maybe transition to vegan, to know that you can certainly raise a healthy, happy, lifelong vegan, and you are living proof of that. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to show. <laughs> that's great. So you co-hosted the 2020 Climate Diet Summit, and I was honored to present at that event. 
Can you speak about what motivated you to do that and how animal activism relates to climate justice? I mean, it's really awesome to see the surge of interest in the environmental community, in young people, in environmental activism and connecting it to veganism and the animal agriculture impact on the environment. So what, what, uh, what motivated you to kind of connect these worlds and create this climate diet summit? Yeah. I mean, I've always been very passionate about environmentalism and environmental issues in addition to animal rights. And they intersect very, you know, very closely because not only is raising and killing animals obviously bad for the animals, but it is one of the leading drivers of climate change and deforestation and literally every major environmental problem plaguing us today. They are so closely connected. And so the ethical choice that is good for the animals is also good for us and our planet. I have been participating in a lot of climate justice work and marches, and especially, you know, with people talking about things like the Green New Deal and these sweeping policy changes to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And I always feel like there is just a big hole in what they are talking about. No one ever wants to talk about agriculture. And when they do, they only want to talk about factory farming. From the research I have seen and the science I have read, it is so much more than just factory farming that is causing these problems. Raising animals for food, pretty much regardless of how it's done, is incredibly inefficient and unsustainable. Just from the, the idea that you have to raise an animal for several years, feed and water them, give them land to live on, when you could be using the, that land, water, and resources to grow food to feed directly to people and cut out that middle step. So it's just inherently incredibly unsustainable. And that's not being talked about as much as I'd like in the environmental communities and especially not at the policy level. So you know, part of my motivation for the Climate Diet Summit was I really wanted to merge the two and bring together holistic environmental justice with animal raising and killing animals for food and, and, and on the ethical side too, because the other part of the conversation that gets left out, if we're being, you know, really holistic here, is climate change is impacting wild free-living animals and destroying their habitat and their lives as well. Yeah. So from an animal rights perspective, we should also care about climate change and environmentalism to protect free-living animals. Yeah. So it just, it intersects on all sides and is very connected. Yeah, and it's frustrating that the environmental some in the environmental community have really embraced things like regenerative grazing and holistic mm -hmm. or rotational grazing. This idea that we can just change, you know, the way we do animal farming uh, and make it better. And it's the the science is not there for that. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, the science is becoming more and more overwhelmingly in favor of just plant-based and not animal farming at all, like switching to organic animal farming or grass-fed or whatever. It does not make the improvements that we need. And sometimes when there's an improvement in one direction, it can still be worse in another. Like with organic farming, often, you know, there might be some slight reduction in admissions, but then the land use goes up and mm -hmm. the water use goes up and we've got to destroy forests and wetlands to accommodate free ranging animals. And they don't take that into account. So it offsets the good. So it's very frustrating. I, I hope very much that, and I think it is moving in this direction, but the environmentalists will really look at the science and really start to embrace plant-based and just reduction of animal products. That needs to be really the only message. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we are going to need to wrap up soon, but I did want to ask you, what gives you the most hope about the future and keeps you, you know, motivated to continue with this work? What gives me hope is the changes I've seen. 
And having been vegan in the Midwest for so long, the changes are happening very rapidly now and, and becoming very obvious. So one example, you know, when I graduated high school in 2012, I didn't know a single other vegan at my high school. And, and it was a pretty big high school. I would have been amazed and like thrilled if I'd met another vegan. I knew like one other vegetarian. I didn't even know that many vegetarians there. Four years later, my sister graduates high school and knows like five different vegans well. and, and hears about a lot more. And, and I don't think it was that I just didn't know about them. Like, I think I would have known if there was another vegan um, in, in my high school. And so just even that difference of four years and now it's become so much more accessible and popular, just even just the diet portion that... I, you know, I talk to people today that are like, oh yeah, I know tons of this and that, you know, like lots of people know other vegans. And so that, that's like one change, but another change, this is one of my favorite stories. This happened last year, actually, I was getting on a plane to go to um, a veg fest where I was speaking. And as I'm sitting down, the couple next to me are talking about the Beyond Burger. And I'm like, oh, are you guys vegan? And, or, you know, I ask them something and they're like, oh, no, we just run a restaurant and, you know, everybody's got to plan their vegan menu these days. So we're trying to figure out what's going to go on it. Mm, And I can't imagine that the people I randomly am seated next to on an airplane 10 years ago would ever have been having a conversation like that. Mm, And that, you know, it was just like, that's the way things are changing. And, and to clarify too, I don't think that consumer changes are going to drive animal rights or drive animal liberation, but they are an important piece of it. And they show how much more widely a vegan diet is becoming accessible, how many more options are available. The conversation is changing. People are clearly learning some piece uh, of veganism today. Yeah. And it's important what you just said. It's true that the consumerism is just a part of it. It's a piece of it. The other piece is the justice piece. And that Mm -hmm. is about recognizing speciesism and really finding justice and rights for these animals. Uh, But, but you're right. Consumerism it's it's the it's the way in to people's kitchens and mm-hmm. and then their hearts for them yep. to understand yeah well thank you so much serena for being on it's been a really wonderful conversation is there how can people get a hold of you yeah so you can visit my website uh, bornvegan.org and i have a, an email and contact form on there you can follow me on instagram at bornvegan1 and YouTube, if you search Born Vegan, my channel will come up. Those are the main platforms I'm on. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on, Serena. Thank you so much for having me, Hope. Really enjoyed this. Yeah, me too. And thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. We hope you're enjoying this podcast and we would love your support. There are numerous ways you can help support us. If you go to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, you can sign up to receive our email reminders about upcoming episodes. You can click on the donate button and help us out with a donation in this very challenging year. And you can also leave a positive rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please take an action today to help support us. We would really appreciate it. And you may not have been born vegan, but there's no time to waste. You can start today. Please do your part to end the suffering of farmed animals and live vegan.